0: Hey everybody, what is up? It's Antonio. Welcome back to episode two here on Teach, Play, Disc Golf, a Gladiator Disc Golf podcast. I'm so excited to have you here with me today. We have some awesome, awesome stuff to talk about. There's actually quite a bit that we are going to be talking about today. A lot has happened in the disc golf world since we filmed episode one, and I am so excited to get to it. So before we get into it, let's go ahead and let me just run you through what we're gonna be talking today today. We're going to talk a little bit about Gannon Burr. We're also going to touch on Drew Gibson and some of the stuff that's been going on with him. Then I'm going to share a disc golf skill that I've been working on that I think is going to help a lot of people out there if they put this skill into practice. Then we're going to do a disc review of probably my favorite, uh, definitely my favorite mid-range, possibly my favorite disc ever. And then we're going to uh, look at the Waco uh, Waco Annual Charity Open coming up here this week and I am so excited uh, for that one and we'll get into that a little bit more but first let's go ahead and let's start with Gannon Burr. Alrighty, so as the disc golf world is aware, a lot has been going on with Prodigy Discs and Ganon Burr. And it's been one of those things where there's been a lot of, uh, there, there's there been a decent amount of information shared, not a lot of information. It actually almost seems like the last uh, week or so, things have been a little bit quieter. Uh, it's fortuitous for Ganon that things have been a little quieter because I think as a little bit more information has come out. People aren't necessarily siding with Prodigy because they know that there are some legitimate issues that Gannon brought to the forefront uh, that people have with Prodigy, uh, specifically their discs and also how they run their company a little bit. But I think people were also starting to see like, hey, Ganon Burr, his mom and whoever else was on his side may not have handle this appropriately or in the best way. And so basically what's going on, in case you're unaware at the at this point, is that Gannon all of a sudden announced one day that he is leaving Prodigy. And he may have given Prodigy a heads up, but definitely it seems that there's some stuff going on. And because Gannon is not only uh, the 2022 USDGC champ, he's only 17 years old and he is one of the best disc golfers in the world at 17 years old. Uh, Not just like what he's won, but skill wise and rating wise, he's very, very good. And so Prodigy is basically suing Gannon Burr is the only way to put it. That's literally what they're doing. And because they're suing someone who's 17, they're suing a minor, which uh, means like his mom is involved because it seems like his mom is kind of representing him in a lot of these things. And then a lot of the discussions with Prodigy, since he's been throwing prodigies, I think since he was like 13 or something, or maybe even younger, maybe 11. So there's definitely been some stuff going on there. And uh, I am not actively on Reddit, but I do know I'm on some other uh, disc golf communities and they've shared some of the information uh, that has been shared publicly about the lawsuit and all these other things. And kind of I just wanted to give my opinion about some of that I am not exactly one side or the other I am very much in the middle and there's a few reasons for that one I don't know all the information I don't think anybody really does and chances are the way this entire thing is going to go is that nobody's going to really get all the information to come to uh, an objective decision. That's going to probably happen behind closed doors if I had a guess. And so because of that, it's just kind of our opinions that we're talking about now. And so on one hand, I get where Prodigy's coming from. It's like, again, in, you sign a contract for X amount of dollars for these discs, that kind of thing. But at the same time, disc golf is in this weird state where it's like, contracts haven't really meant much up until like a year ago and even then contracts still aren't meaning a whole lot and what I mean by all that is like we see players all the time leaving contracts early and really without any sort of consequence for leaving them early or breaking their contract and other sports an athlete can't just go and break a contract whenever they want because there are consequences for those things and disc golf hasn't really been having that sort of uh consequence for disc golfers uh but i think that is starting to change and we'll get to that in a little bit but the thing is like prodigy okay you want to you want to sue because you want to keep your best athlete on your team but that's not really a good look for you especially when uh the player you're suing is 17 years old um also it definitely is kind of like a uh a slap in the face to Kevin Jones because in the lawsuit, in the filing, they basically said Gannon is our you know best player, our top tier, and if we lose him, we lose basically all of our business. <laughs> and if you're Kevin Jones, it's kind of like, wow, I literally have a line of discs that have been coming out since last year and all this other stuff now, to be fair again uh, is much better than kevin jones at least as of right now and Gannon has performed better overall has won tournaments but kj almost uh, turned that around at the las vegas challenge he almost did it. i was wanting him to do it just for himself to kind of put his stamp back on the disc golf pro tour and say like hey i'm still here but he came up just a little bit short and we talked about that in last week's episode so that's kind of the whole prodigy side i, I don't entirely agree with them but I understand why they might be doing it. I just don't think it's a good decision to do. I think it, Prodigy's in a position where it's a bad look either way. If you can lose another player, it's like, okay, you lost Katrina Allen, you cro- lost Chris Dickerson, now you lost Gannon Burr. And that's just within the last like three years. That's not even counting all the other pros that have left. Jeremy Colin used to be on Prodigy. Ricky Waisaki used to be on Prodigy. Paul Ulibar used to be on Prodigy. Like All these players that are great at other manufacturers now used to be on Prodigy, and they're not there anymore. So Prodigy kind of has this history. Um, But the thing is, like, they're just in a really tough position, and I don't envy them, because they're really in a lose-lose position. So my opinion about Prodigy in this entire thing, and this may not be the most popular opinion, is that they might just be taking one for the team. I really think that they're reaching a point where where disc golf is reaching a point with contracts and all this other stuff that people are starting to take them a little bit more seriously but not like they should and i think until something dramatic happens that really kind of like wakes everyone up that the contracts and agents and all this other potentially like you know a players association which you know i heard another podcast talking about that the disc golf podcast which is awesome if you're uh wanting to check out another podcast, check out the Disc Golf Podcast. Joe and Robin, I've been listening to them for years. They have talked the, in the most recent episode, I believe 275, they talked about like the possibility of a players association, but that being probably several, several years, if if it's ever gonna happen, several years away. And I just think that Prodigy is taking one for the team because everyone's realizing contracts are becoming more important and need to be more ironclad. People need to have consequences if they break it. And Prodigy is just kind of the loser in this situation where they're making it evident like, hey, manufacturers, retailers, sponsors, whoever you are, when you make a contract with someone, you need to protect yourself uh, before just being excited to have someone really good on your team. Um, because who knows what's going to happen to Prodigy after all of this is said and done. Um, you know, definitely not the best look. So I think they might be taking one for the team. Who knows if Prodigy's going to last very long after this. I imagine they'll, since they manufacture their own discs, they're not gonna go completely out of business. But the thing is, I've already seen people like getting rid of Prodigy discs like crazy. I saw a guy on Facebook selling his entire lot. I think it was for like 2000 or $3,000, but it was like an insane amount of discs, like just straight up selling them, which was wild to think about. But now on the other side, you have Ganon Burr with some legitimate complaints. You know, one of the things is that the two biggest things that I have heard, not only uh, from Ganon, but from other people who have ever tried Prodigy, like myself, I've tried some of their molds, is that it's inconsistent. So like I've, I've messed around with the F5 and the F7 a couple times. And the F5 is very similar to an Eagle, like flight number wise, but it doesn't fly anything like an Eagle. And even within the F7 itself, or excuse me, the F5 itself, you have some that are just super beefy and some that are flippy. Even worse, I've tried an F7, which if you are familiar with Prodigy, that's their most understable fairway driver. Excuse me, F5 is probably more like uh, an FD. I might be thinking F2, which would be more like an Eagle. Uh, But the F7 is their most understable fairway driver. And I threw F7, like it should. I think it's something like seven five minus four one. It was Katrina Allen's, like one of her signature discs. And I'm pretty sure I've thrown some that fly more like an FD or even have some fade on them. And so just inconsistencies in their mold. And we see, we saw this a lot with the pros with their D2s and D1s and you know all the other uh, over supposedly neutral to overstable drivers that they threw just oh, this is a stable run, this is an overstable run, this is a, an understable run, all these things, and it's just like, if it's a D2, which is like 12-6-2-2, two, two, why is it not always flying like that, or at least as close to it as possible? And so there were some inconsistencies that Gannon pointed out in just the manufacturing of the molds. But besides just the inconsistencies in the flight patterns and uh, and everything, like, flashing is a huge problem with prodigy and has been for years this is something that i haven't experienced a whole lot because i haven't thrown a lot of prodigy but i have seen and heard from other people that flashing is a problem and if you're unfamiliar with that term basically discs are made in an injection mold machine and you know, you have this mold and the disc comes out and there's going to be flashing possibly some, which is basically like residual plastic on the bottom that you need to shave away and get rid of. Now, Prodigy claims to shave that stuff off and get rid of it. But I've held some new Prodigy discs at different different disc golf stores and it feels very sharp under there uh, on the rim specifically. And it's just like, if you were actually taking care of this, this should be nice and smooth. And so... If you're a little bit confused like what flashing feels like, go ahead and pick up a disc that's laying by you while you're listening to this or when you get home. And like whether it's from Innova or Disc Craft or something or MVP, like you'll feel the edge of the rim, the inside where your fingers would go. And it's probably really smooth. Well, imagine now like a thin piece of plastic just wrapped around the rim or parts of the rim. And it's like very, very short, like only two millimeters tall kind of thing, but very thin plastic. And it just scrapes. And it's like, I shouldn't have to take a pocket knife or sandpaper or something to fix this. This should be fixed at the manufacturing facility. Um, And so that's kind of the two biggest things that Gannon talked about and why he wanted to leave Prodigy, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, Dude, you've also thrown Prodigy since you were like nine or 11 or 13 years old. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but you've been throwing Prodigy for a long, long time. So, like, this stuff is not brand new. So, I was a little like interested, I should say, as to why that all of a sudden would be an issue for him. But the other thing, and this is obviously not some, and those are problems that like the average disc golfer would experience with Prodigy. This next part that I'm gonna get to is something that only uh, Gannon specifically is experiencing here. Not so much the rest of us amateur disc golfers and even other professionals, if you're listening to this, is that Gannon said he was promised some signature discs that never ended up happening. They weren't part of his contract, like within the actual contract but it happened via messaging on like Facebook Messenger and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm not I I'm not making this up. Like a lot of this stuff was happening over Facebook Messenger and social media conversations, that kind of thing. So, he said that he didn't get this that they were supposed to and Prodigy said, "No, you did. We did these." back and forth a little bit of that there was some money that he never got he eventually did end up getting some money so all of that to say Gannon I think definitely has a leg to stand on with some of this but I don't think he handled it the best way he's obviously very young and doesn't have I think the kind of life experience yet to know how to properly handle something like this like you know he had some options. And the first option would be, would like talk with your manufacturer. Uh, It seems like kind of people were caught off guard at Prodigy that he was leaving because he posted it on social media. And that kind of seemed like to be his big announcement. And so I definitely think like, he needed someone in his corner to say, hey, let's go talk with Prodigy. Let's figure this thing out. And the thing is like, these conversations could have been happening. But like I said, we don't really know everything like we know a lot of stuff as a disc golf community which i think you know three years ago we wouldn't have found out about all this but i think now we're finding out a little bit more so it's very interesting stuff i'm kind of in the middle i don't think necessarily either side is wrong i think there are both sides have handled some things incorrectly or like they could have been a little bit better about handling it this way rather than that than what they chose to do um overall, I am excited to see what happens because I think if Prodigy and Gannon can kind of like amend their relationship, that'd be really good for both sides because Gannon sells so much plastic and he would really benefit from that. And basically, you know, yes, Kevin Jones is there. But besides the two of them, there's as far as I can think of, like they have a couple other sponsored pros, but like those two guys probably sell the most discs. Yes, you have Isaac and Ezra Robinson and Alden Harris and a couple others, but like those three guys are not selling the same amount of discs as Kevin Jones and Gannember. And Yannimber is far and above based on, you know, what we've been told and what we've heard, like selling more discs than Kevin Jones is even selling. So like it would be helpful for him to make more money with that, but also for Prodigy to be able to sell more discs instead of losing a huge uh, a huge part of their business. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And I really don't think we're going to hear anything um, until like several months down the road and it's going to be like, yep, I'm on Team Prodigy or I sign a new contract or at the end of this year, I'm going to fulfill my contract because it's a two year contract one year last year. And now this year is the second year going to fulfill it and then finish out the year with Prodigy and then go elsewhere. Um, That's basically what I think is going to happen. We'll see what happens. Hopefully within a few weeks that it can be resolved or in a couple months is what I'm thinking. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about is another disc golfer. If you watched uh, the Las Vegas Challenge, the final round specifically, you would have seen Anthony Barella kind of losing handle on the lead, kind of starting to... uh, basically almost like not being in contention anymore. And so he's kind of scrambling at the end here, trying to put some drives together and get some birdies, get back in contention. He had a throw that went behind the cameraman, but close enough to the cameraman that it also hit the guy who is basically doing the range finder so that they could see how far he threw, that kind of thing. Now, typically, cameramen are standing in a spot where the disc really isn't going to come to them. I mean, there's zoom on camera lenses. We see it all the time in, in, the, in the live video. But the thing is like, Anthony Burrell throws so far and the cameraman still has to be in a position to see him down the fairway and be able to follow the disc. It just seems like this disc kind of just kept going straight. And there was a basically a, a bunker right behind the camera guy. But more importantly, right behind the rangefinder guy and who was probably a volunteer, not being paid. The disc went kind of over the bunker or right in front of the bunker, hit the uh, range finder guy and stayed in the bunker, which is a penalty stroke. It's a hazard, so Anthony Barella would play from where it landed. Now, we don't know with 100% certainty that the disc wouldn't have ended up in the bunker if I'm remembering correctly, but most people are certain that it would have skipped right over and he would have been in bounds, which is kind of why there's this big frustration about the whole thing. Well, that's the situation that happened. Anthony Barella had a drive that's basically kicked out of bounds um, when it would have been in bounds by someone who isn't really supposed to be in that position to mess up a shot. Well, Drew Gibson went and made a hoodie that says four on it, and he got a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of criticism, took a lot of crap for it uh, on his Instagram page, on his website. You could go buy it. it I think it's probably still available. But basically, it says four kind of playing off of the whole you know thing that happened, taking advantage of the situation in the sense of being able to make some money off of it. Now, I don't have an issue with someone seeing an opportunity and taking it, but it's also like, I don't know, it's just a, a, maybe a little tasteless, you know, like taking advantage of a situation that was outside of Anthony Borella's control. And then basically, uh, harassing is not the right word, but basically uh, making a profit off of someone's expense who is a more than likely a volunteer who wanted to like be a part of the event and like help the tournament and that person's already feeling horrible enough as it is and you now go and make like a hoodie and everything out of off of their expense so that's I think where a lot of people are coming from with it and I can definitely Uh, See that I do feel those sentiments. Like I, I do think like it would have been best if Drew Gibson did not make the hoodie. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure the uh, post is still up on his Instagram. I don't think he took it down. He had a big comment in all caps pinned at the top, so I'm fairly certain he did not take it down. But you, uh, if you're not uh, certain about what I'm talking about, you can go ahead and look at that. It says four, and then a couple days later, he came out with a hoodie that says, um, like everyone is an enemy in someone's story or something like that, which was sorry. That was just kind of dumb. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't even like, I don't know. That just seems really melodramatic. And it's like, okay, you got called out on it. You tried taking advantage of a situation that you weren't even involved in at the expense of someone who is more than likely a volunteer. You know, you're taking advantage of them making the four hoodie and uh because you got called out on it and you're gonna go make another hoodie now where it's basically uh everyone is a villain in someone's story or the enemy in someone else's story and it's just like that's a little melodramatic and you know okay man whatever uh (laughs) whatever works for you definitely as i'm talking about now i'm getting more worked up about it so i'm definitely not on his side with this whole hoodie debacle all right, so enough with some of those current events. That went way longer than I was expecting it to, but it was just a lot of interesting stuff, I think, especially with the and Burr Saga, as I have it in my notes here. Um, but I want to talk about the skill. You know, at Teach Play Disc Golf, the purpose here is to teach people how to play disc golf. And for us, the listeners, me, the host, and just disc golfers in general to have fun playing it and I just am so passionate about teaching how to play. So in this segment, we are going to be talking about standstill shots. So for the last, this has really only been about a week or so in the process, I've actually only been throwing standstill backhands, and when I can even standstill forehands, but I've mainly been working on my backhand. It's progressed really well lately, and I'm really excited about that, but I've only been throwing standstill backhands off the tee, off the fairway, whenever I need to throw a backhand, I'm throwing standstill. And I have found incredible success with it, even in just a week, because I'm going back to the basics, I'm adjusting my form, I'm focusing on making sure I'm engaging my lower body first, before worrying about what my upper body is doing. And so basically what's happening is by doing this, and I would recommend everyone else try this, Throwing standstill really makes you slow things down. It is so easy with the X step in the backhand to get carried away and kind of lose your form a little bit and end up thinking you're throwing with your lower body or at least engaging your lower body. And really you're just twisting your back and your spine and throwing really hard with your arm, which is not at all what you want to be doing. And so... um, It's definitely been helpful for me to slow these things down and to focus on my lower body engagement. I've been thinking about initiating with the hips and getting my back leg off the ground because like we talked about in last week's video, by engaging those hips gliding forward into your brace and getting that back leg off the ground, you're fully putting your weight and momentum into your brace leg and you can't help but follow through. And so this is something that's been really helping me fine tune my form. I had some great success this past weekend with this. If, uh, if you check out my Instagram page, uh, at Gladiator Disc Golf, you'll see that I made a reel where I threw uh, the mint bullet off the tee twice. Now the first throw with it, I got a little lucky. And by a little lucky, I mean a lot lucky. Uh, I hit a really narrow gap and it basically just kept going down to the basket. Now this is a pretty steep downhill hole, but it's 378 feet and it's really easy to miss your gap because it's pretty narrow off the tee if you just waver a little bit. Um, Unless you get lucky like me on the first throw, you're gonna hit a tree. So I threw the first one, I was like, okay, it was a good throw, but I didn't get my back leg up. I didn't have a clean follow through. Basically, I was powering into the throw with my lower body. And since my back foot stayed on the ground, it basically worked like a break. And so I was like accelerating and breaking at the same time, which is kind of why I didn't have a, a throw that hit my line. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let me take my other mint bullet, one of the new glow ones. And let me make sure that I do the same thing to start my throw, but get that back foot up. And I did that. And not only did I hit my gap right down the middle, I literally ended up under the basket. Um, It was awesome to watch fly through the air. It was so, so cool. I don't care that it was 378 feet downhill. It is still a shot where you have to hit your line. And it was so amazing to see the disc fly through the air like that. Not only is it a great putter, but it was just such a beautiful shot. So I share that story because by simplifying my form, by going back to the basics here and really making sure I get the the building blocks in place where they need to be, I've been having way more success with my backhand, I've been progressing faster over the last week with my backhand than I would even say over the last two three months, where I was progressing a lot. Like things have just started to click so much better. And I was dealing with a lot of pain in my arm because I was, <clears throat> I was thinking like, oh, I'm not throwing with my arm, but then I feel pain. I'm like, I clearly am throwing with my arm. And so going to that stance has just helped me separate kind of. My upper and lower body, and just focusing on that, and that has helped tremendously. One of the biggest things that I've noticed is that I was doing these X steps on the uh, on these T pads where I was th- where I've been throwing standstills, and not only am I having better throws, but my scores are basically the same, if not better. And so this just kind of goes to show, like, hey, X steps are good. But if you don't have a good standstill, which is the foundation for the X step, you're not actually getting a whole lot more distance and power um, in your X step. Now, you could be getting distance and power from other things like throwing with some oat and throwing an overstable disc on Anheuser and just having it flex and get some extra distance that way. There's other variables that come into play. But if you're talking about you know, trying to keep your form as uh, similar to your standstill in, in your X-step, it's like, oh, if you're not getting that much further distance, something is wrong here. And it's that transfer of power from the lower body. And so this standstill has helped me improve my accuracy, improve my distance, and improve my consistency, which has just been awesome to experience and just see myself making that progress. And so I definitely want to encourage you guys as you're listening to this to give it a shot. It's going to feel really, really hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be hard showing up to a disc golf course and only throwing standstill. You're almost going to feel like people are like watching you and judging you like, oh, he can't even, he or she can't even do an X step. Uh, they must be, you know, a beginner at disc golf. And you know, that might, uh, Some people might actually be thinking that, but at the same time, I highly doubt anyone's watching your game. So I really want to encourage you to give this a shot, whether it's backhand or forehand. Next time you're playing around, go ahead and throw just standstills and really focus on your form and not so much about what your arm is doing, getting that lower body engaged. I think you're going to see, uh, you might drop a little bit, but it's going to help you get so much better, so much faster. So if you do that, please let me know how it goes for you. I am so excited to hear about that. I've had great success with it, and I think you will too. All right, so let's go ahead and let's get to our disc review. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about how the disc we're going to discuss is probably not only my favorite mid-range, but possibly my favorite disc ever. And that disc is the Mint Discs Bobcat. The Bobcat is a five-speed, five-glide, zero-turn, two-and-a-half fade mid-range. It might be four-glide, actually, come to think of it. Um, It's an overstable mid-range. Think of it like in the same ballpark, uh, numerically, you know, flight number-wise, as something like a Rock 3, uh, a Buzz OS, not as overstable as an MVP deflector, but... In that family of overstable mids. It is one of the discs that I... My buddy Matt gave me a Bobcat probably two years into playing disc golf. And I was like, this thing is just so overstable. It was one of the Sublime Bobcats, like first run Sublime with the really cool Bobcat stamp on it. And I I got rid of them, you know, several months later (laughs) after he gave them to me because neither of us liked it at the time I was like this is too overstable for me or I just don't like this disc I I rather throw you know the rock three is what I was throwing at the time and so another day goes by that I don't regret that <laughs> but over time I came back to the mint bobcat and I have had one in the bag now for two years maybe over two years and it is my favorite mid-range that I've ever thrown, even like more so than straight ones, and it's not because like I have some crazy arm speed and like mechanics where I can just throw a bobcat 400 feet, even though it's overstable. I just love the disc so much. It is so comfortable for backhand and forehand. It has a flatter top, um, but it's a beadless mid-range overstable mid-range, which is really nice. So it's super comfortable for backhand and forehand. And I just think it's so versatile. It's available in a lot of different plastics at this point. It's one of their most popular molds. I mean, Mint's molds are pretty much all popular, but the Bobcat is like top two or three. And it's available in their Royal Plastic, which is their base plastic. You can get it in Apex, Eternal, and Sublime Plastic, uh, and Glow Plastic now. And so it's just like, you can get in all different types of plastic, which is amazing because for someone like me, I love layering molds. I love getting different plastics, beating in those plastics, and just having a bunch of different stabilities available because it just makes it like so easy to make a decision. I know I'm reaching for this disc. Now the question is, what kind of stability do I need? And do I need a backhand or forehand? So it just simplifies the decision-making process for me. And so... The Bobcat, super great. One of the things I like about it is that it's overstable, it will fade, but it is not overstable that it is a meat hook. You know, you have some molds out there, something like the Deflector. Uh, Earlier today, I was messing around with the Lone Star Discs Walker. Discs that are just really overstable, MD5 is like this from Discmania. Um, So overstable that unless you have really good power, It can be difficult to get a nice flight out of the disc without throwing anhyzer and steep anhyzer at that. But with the Bobcat, with it being two and a half fade, you actually get some workability with it. Now, this disc is not point and shoot. I just want to be like totally upfront with that. A lot of people will like to use that term when talking about discs. Like it goes exactly where you throw it. Well yeah, a disc is going to fly exactly where you throw it. Now, the result of the flight is might be a little bit different. This disc is going to fade, so you need to uh, prepare for that. Obviously, different levels of wear, it's going to adjust how much it fades, but this disc will flex, but it's a nice glidey flex. It's not going to dump too soon. It's going to hold that Anheuser line, but finish out nice and flat. And depending on the distance, your power, and just how much anhyzer you threw it on, it might finish flat or come back and fade a little bit. So you can get some really nice workable flights. And this is a great tool to have when playing in the woods, especially here in Tennessee. There's been a lot more wooded disc golf than when I was living in Texas. And I've loved throwing the bobcat and carving up the woods and just finding, you know, really cool lines to throw. I have a pink Royal soft Bobcat that's been in the bag for over two years. And if you are familiar with the Royal plastic, you'll know that that thing in my bag is so like waffly and warped. It doesn't fly like a Bobcat. It turns. Like I will throw it on a hyzer flip. It will flip to flat and turn and then have like a super baby fade at the end. So I have bobcats in the bag that don't even fly like bobcats anymore, <laughs> but that's part of the whole layering process. But it's just so nice to have that familiarity of not only the, the way it feels in the hand, but I've learned the kind of flight to expect from it. And so I definitely recommend checking out the Mint Bobcat. Uh, OTB has them, and I strongly recommend going there. Those guys are great. And if you use Gladiator DG uh, as a discount code, you'll get free shipping. And so you can save yourself a little bit of money or use that money and go ahead and get another Bobcat. So that's basically um, my favorite disc. I wanted to share that. Let me know if you guys have tried the Bobcat before and if you did, what were your thoughts on it? And if you haven't tried it and you're looking for a new overstable mid-range, I highly recommend it. Uh, There are enough Bobcats out there that the market is a little bit diluted, which is good because you don't have to go pay a pretty penny for it. Unless, of course, you're trying to get some of the limited runs that are out there, which, are not necessary, you can go ahead and get a bobcat for 15, 20 bucks um, and save yourself from some, some money with that. So that is that, mint bobcat, the best overstable mid-range I've ever thrown. Super comfortable for backhand and forehand. Great workable lines, reliable fade. Go ahead and check it out. Alrighty, this past weekend we had some really cool tournaments. We did not have an elite series tournament, so there was nothing on UDIS to like Grip six pick. Uh, There really uh, was not a whole, there was like no live coverage. Um, It was a pretty quiet weekend, actually, you know, in, in that regard. I was not ready for that when the weekend came up. I was like, oh, I guess it's all post produced. Now, I had heard about the memorial and I thought it was an elite series event. So I was getting ready for it and then I couldn't find it. And then I heard a few days later that it was on the disc golf guy. Uh, on Terry Miller's YouTube page, uh, YouTube channel. Now, before we get into some tournament coverage and review, I'm just going to come out and say that I uh, did not watch the Memorial. I know, I know. I, I heard it had a great ending, went to playoff holes and all this stuff, but I did not watch it because initially I couldn't find it. Like I didn't know where it was. And I follow several YouTube channels, but I didn't. Follow, I don't follow Terry Miller, the disc golf guy, so I didn't see it coming up on my feed. And I was like, "Oh, I guess they just don't have post-produced coverage of it, even though there's a lot of pros there." And I was like, "Okay, that's fine." GK Pro has the crush at the Concho, which I started watching, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and so that's the tournament that we're going to be talking about today. And I hope you're okay with that. Um, If you didn't watch it, I strongly recommend it. Something that was really interesting about this course is that it, first off, it's a Texas course and someone who lived in Texas for nearly five years, like Texas Disc Golf has a special place in my heart. And this course is in San Angelo, which is, you know, a little more West Texas. And the course looks simple. Like it looks like it could be so easily repetitive Heiser over the trees or just like straight tunnel shots the whole way. But like Joel Freeman and Casey White were talking about, and and they were hosting it on GK Pro, by the way, they did phenomenal. They talked about how like the course designers did a really good job making sure that every hole felt different, that every hole was a different shot, that you couldn't only throw the same shot over and over. And so this event was an a tier and it was just really good really enjoyable no it's not the most like aesthetically pleasing to look at on coverage but it was really cool watching coverage and seeing just all the different lines that the pros were taking and just the different uh, skill sets and what they preferred to do in certain situations so the two big names there were three big names at that tournament you had joel freeman Emerson Keith, and Nico LaCastia. And it was really cool because all three of them were on the feature card for round one. And uh, unfortunately, Nico didn't play super well round one. He actually struggled a lot. I think he only shot like three under. He actually shot nine strokes worse than Joel Freeman, who shot like a scorching 12 or 13 under first round, I think. It was something really, really good. Um, He performed really well. And so... Nico wasn't on coverage the rest of the weekend, but we'll get to some of his results here in a little bit. Um, So round one was really cool. You had Joel and Emerson who played really well there. Joel had maybe a two or three stroke lead, did really well after round one. He is someone that over the last year and a half has really come into his own. Like Joel Freeman has been touring for a while, but something over the last year and a half he's just been in co- in uh in contention for wins, way more than I remember him being in contention for wins before. He's doing really well on tour and he's kind of a dark horse in the sense uh in my opinion f- for this year, like he could be someone that comes and wins some pretty big events. Now I'm not saying like world champion USDGC, but I'm also not counting him out either. I definitely think that there is something to his game. He has a great backhand and a great forehand. He has power, touch. His putting is pretty good. Uh, He's a pretty good putter, definitely one of the better ones on tour. I think for him, it's just a matter of keeping it all together like skill-wise but then also the mental game and that's been something that he's talked about on his instagram page about just his mental game and his mental strength dealing with adversity on the course not even like adversity with other players but just with his with himself and like when he's not performing well being able to overcome that or work through it so joel freeman's kind of like my dark horse pick uh for this year i do i am i gonna pick him for every event no but I definitely think he's going to surprise a lot of people and Emerson Keith played really well he is in his first year with Lone Star Discs and he is just seeing he seems so comfortable with his bag with the discs he's throwing but most importantly with the putter Emerson's putting with the Victor Blue Bonnet which is a super straight putter it's zero turn one fade two three excuse me The blue bonnet is two speed, three fade, zero turn, and one. I just messed all of that up, holy smokes. Okay, the blue bonnet is two speed, three glide, zero turn, and one fade. So a very straight putter. And Emerson's a spin putter, so having that nice neutral disc is perfect for him. And he was just cashing in putts all over the course. And so after round one... We had a new card for round two. Nico was off that card. And you had this forehand player. I think it was Blake, uh, like Whiteside or Blake. Um, Anyway, forehand player, really good. Had a good backhand too. Threw in the, like his form was so interesting because he threw as if he was almost just relaxed. Like you could tell he was relaxed. But his form was so relaxed too, which is which was very interesting. And he crushed, but he especially crushed forehand. Like he was trusting overstable discs on such wild Anheuser lines, and they always fought out and like he was gaining some ridiculous distance with the forehand. He played really well, but Round two and round three actually had the same card. But you know, like I mentioned, Nico didn't perform super well round one. He only shot like three or four under. He came back with like a 12 under in round two. And then in round three, he scored really, really well. He had another, he had like a nine under round. And so he actually finished, and we'll get to the the standings in a little bit, but I'm pretty sure he finished like tied for third or in fourth. So he kind of, you know, he climbed his way back into like a podium finish or close to a podium finish, so that is really cool for him as someone who is also thrown with a brand new bag, all Lone Star discs. So that's that event was something that I thought was really fun to watch. Probably more out of personal preference um, because I saw the trees that they were throwing around and through. I'm like, oh man, I've dealt with courses that have had those trees and. If you haven't played in Texas, I know it could be hard to believe, but those trees that you see on coverage in these Texas courses, like Crush at the Concho and you're gonna see in Waco, they really hate discs. (laughs) Like it is so, so, so rare for a disc to hit those kinds of trees and just be totally fine. Like uh, not saying that the disc will break, But even hitting a twig on the edge, it's probably going to knock your disc down. And you're going to be like, well, that sucks because I didn't get nearly as far down as the fairway. It's not as soft as a tree, so to speak. Like it does, it's not as flexible. um, And the discs just get caught up in them so easily. Uh, But, you know, this round, this tournament was a lot of fun to watch. And it was proof to me that uh, there is Texas golf that isn't as boring as it looks. There are some challenging holes out there. I will say that uh, the basket on the picnic table, and yes, you heard me correctly there, they put a basket on top of a picnic table in an A-tier event with pros all around the country playing it. Uh, That was a little cheesy. That was a little hokey. Um, they probably could have come up with something better, like either just make it an elevated basket basket with a taller pole or just put it on the ground. Um, having the picnic table there kind of just made it look like uh, a putting league event and uh, definitely detracted a little bit from the prestige that comes with an A tier. Uh, so I wasn't crazy about that. But overall a really good event I did enjoy it but let's go ahead and let's get to the results so for MPO we had Joel Freeman at minus 36 in first place in second place Emerson Keith minus 34 and then we had a four-way tie for third place at minus 27 so Joel and Emerson really led the pack they were uh, Emerson was 7 strokes ahead of everyone and then Joel was 9 strokes ahead of third place. And so it was really a battle between the two of them um especially on the back nine of round 3. But in third place tied for third you had Jaden Rye, Nico Lacastro, Nicholas Rotin or Rauthen and then Casey White. Oh, and then Blake Whitehead. I said Blake Whiteside. It's uh Blake Whitehead was in 7th at minus 25 Kevin Kiefer my uh, in eighth place at minus 24 and then tied for ninth another tie a three-way tie charlie moore aj carey and andrew fish at minus 21 so last week we had mpo a lot more congested it was like seven strokes separated the top 12 players whereas this event that was an elite series las vegas challenge this event is just a local a tier um that attract a lot of pros because the Texas swing is coming around, and we saw a lot more uh, separation in the scores. So overall, a really cool event. I did not see FPO coverage, and I'm looking at the FPO results, and there were only eight women. So we'll just go ahead and we'll uh, run through the top three. So we, because uh, I recognize some of these names. So in first place, we had Stacy Ronsley at plus four. Second place was Hannah uh, Hun or Hoin uh, at plus five. So that's a really close battle there. Uh, one stroke difference. Third place, another close battle at plus six for Aria Castruida. And then fourth place, Deanne Carey with a plus 10. So first, second, and 3rd were battling it out. And uh, really, really good event. Not a big FPO feel, which is why there probably wasn't any coverage for it but um, still a good event nonetheless. I enjoyed it. Uh, if you are starved for some disc golf content during the week, I strongly recommend going and checking it out, it was really cool. Um, there was a lot of wind, so these players had to play in some incredible wind and yet they still shot some amazing scores, both, both on the FPO and MPO side, FPO and MPO side. But let's go ahead and let's talk about what everyone really wants to know. Waco annual charity open this is one of my favorite events of the year it is such a cool event it takes place at the Beast in Waco uh, the Brazo along the Brazos East River it is such a good event I have played the Beast and that name is appropriate I love this tournament and there's a couple reasons for that one I've obviously played the not the event but the course it's a lot of fun very, very tough. But also this event tends to happen around my birthday in late March. This is uh, a little bit earlier than I think it's been in years past, which is fine. It's fine. It's okay. They don't have to play it on my birthday. But I have a, uh, a little birthday ritual that I do. And that is years ago, Paul Macbeth through the first, uh, 18 under round ever. And it happened at the beast. And so on my birthday, I go and watch that Jomez pro coverage of Paul's 18 under round. Now, I think in in the last few years, I've watched it where Paul is actually commentating on the round, I think with Jeremy Coling and Nate Sexton. But other years, I've also watched like the actual Um, Final round coverage with the other players on the card. I just really enjoy it. It's incredible to watch and to just see what he does. Now that course has changed some of the pars on some of the holes where he got eagles that they would now only be birdies. But at the time, 18 under. That is just incredible. So I I love this event. This course is really cool. It has a great combination, in my opinion, of Wooded holes and open holes that have some interesting obstacles in the way that aren't even all that gimmicky either. Just trees everywhere, even in the open holes. And there are lanes, but you just have to be on your game. But the toughest part about this course is the wind. Especially in the springtime, the river is literally right there where they're playing. The wind is insane. You will see players get screwed over because of the wind. And it really just comes down to being able to use the wind to your advantage. And so we know some people who have done that. Last year, we had Valerie Mandahano win the FPO field. The year before that, we had Kona Panis, who is now Kona Montgomery, win uh, win Waco. And I think the year before that, we had her husband, now husband, Colton Montgomery, win the MPO field. And so it's been really cool. The last couple of years at Waco have had great tournaments, um, great finishes. We've seen Simon throw on hole 18, a putter 400 plus feet. Uh, It is just always so much fun to watch. I am so excited to watch the coverage this weekend. Now, uh, I have not played a tournament there, but here are kind of like my tips for playing that course, whether you're uh, you know, going to play there casually or what I think the key components are for the pros is you obviously need to make minimal mistakes. Now, obviously that is for every round, but specifically at Waco, there is just too many areas to get in trouble that will literally cost you the tournament in round one. When you get in, if you get into the rough at the beast, you are in the rough. It is really hard to scramble out. And so you need to minimize your mistakes. You need to stay in the fairway. Even if you hit a tree and just drop straight down, as long as you stay in the fairway, you're in better, better position than someone who's stuck in the rough. And then the other thing is to use the wind to your advantage. Now, this is easier said than done because some holes you're gonna be throwing into the wind or with the wind, and that may not entirely be what you want. But finding ways to use the wind to your advantage, you are players are not going to beat Mother Nature. So you might as well have her on your side. And so I definitely recommend using the wind to your advantage. I think the winner this weekend is gonna make the fewest mistakes. They're gonna stay in the fairway they're going to use the wind to your advantage, and they're going to handle the temperamental Texas weather. We've seen it in years past where round one is freezing cold. We got hoodies and beanies and gloves on. And then by round three, they're in t-shirt and shorts, and they're sweating and drinking water like crazy and Gatorade. So being able to Handle the changes in the weather, how that's going to affect not only your grip on the discs, but also the discs that you throw. Um, and so being able to handle that is, you know, I think the winner is going to do all of those things really, really well. They're going to have to in order to win the event because there are some people whose games are just dialed in. I'm really hoping for a great, great showing from Valerie Mandahano. I would love to see her perform well here. After switching from DD, D, 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 after switching from Dynamic Discs to discraft. it'll be really interesting to see how she performs with a new bag. But that's basically my thoughts. Now, let's go ahead and let's pick our Grip 6. Um, this is the first time I'm getting to do it on Teach Play Disc Golf. And so I may not like the idea of doing it live, but I'm thinking, you know, being able to kind of talk through it a little bit. Uh, will help me in my decision-making and kind of give you some insight to make your picks as we do this together. Uh, so I'm obviously gonna go with Paul McBeth. He always seems to perform well here. I like him a lot on this course. Obviously, I talked about his 18-under round. It's a lot of fun to watch that. Gannon just won the Memorial the Fountain Hill at Fountain Hills, and he's been playing really well, but Calvin also won Las Vegas Challenge, which dealt with wind, and I just think Calvin's playing really well overall. Um, man, you know, I I have a soft spot for this player. I've met him. He uh, he's a really really cool guy. He lives in Texas. Uh, do I do this? I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna put Greg Barsby on my grip six pick to play this event. He has great control of the discs. He does really well in wooded courses. He has all the touch in the world to play really well at a course like this. And then I guess so you can kind of say he's my dark horse, but I think my real dark horse here is going to be Joel Freeman on the MPO side. So I have Macbeth, Barsby, and Freeman for Waco. I just think their games are all really good and dialed in and they've been playing well the last several weeks, and they are consistent performers. Um, You don't see them having crazy ups and downs throughout the year. They may have a bad tournament here or there, but overall, they are consistent finishers, and they play really well. Now, for the FPO side, you better believe, I don't care that she just got to the United States, Kristen Tatar, is 100% going to be my pick for Waco. And I'm probably not unique in that whatsoever. But with that, I'm also going to take Valerie Mandahano because she won it last year. And I think that she has the ability and the skills to do it again. And then, oh man, it's tough from here. There are a lot of players I feel like I can make an argument for. You have Owen Scoggins, Paige Pierce, Missy Gannon, Katrina Allen, Holland Hanley. But I think I'm gonna go with Owen Scoggins, and it's just one of those where Own does not make a lot of mistakes. And we talked about the winner here has to stay in the fairway, make minimal mistakes. Own doesn't have crazy power. She has good power to compete at the highest level. But what she lacks in power, she makes up for with accuracy, consistency, and putting. And so I just think that in these crazy conditions, Own is a great pick um, because you need someone who's going to be consistent on this course. So, to recap, before we wrap it up here, I have on the MPO side, Macbeth, Barsby, and Freeman. And on the FPO side, I have Tatar, Valerie Mandahano, and Own Scoggins. We're going to go ahead and save my picks so that I don't backtrack and uh, change my mind in the future. But we're going to go ahead and let's go ahead and let's Save these picks. Uh, The tiebreaker, how many strokes will FPO and MPO champions score? A combined... uh, Man, I didn't... I forgot they asked this question for tiebreaker. Um, I think scores in the past have been in the 30s or 40s. So we'll go ahead and we'll say 55. I'm not entirely certain if that is even remotely that seems really high. Um, hold on, let's take a pause here. I'm going to pull up last year's results. Alrighty, so I'm really glad that I paused to look up last year's results. So I was thinking like, oh, I think like 35 and 20 or 40 and 20 or something like that for the fish. I'm really glad I looked that up because last year the winning score for MPO was minus 23 by uh, Paul Macbeth. That's right, he won it last year too. I totally forgot about that. That's right, Luke Humphreys almost won it. Oh man, it feels like years ago. And then FPO, Valerie Mandahano won it at minus nine. So that only adds up to be minus 32 as the final score. So I'm going to go, oh man, I'm gonna go 35. I'm gonna give the over on last year's scores. I'm gonna go 35 as the tiebreaker for the total strokes between mpo and fpo and so we'll go ahead and we will lock that in um, i am super excited for the waco annual charity open guys i hope you are too and that's basically all i have for you today i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did go ahead and please leave a review if you're listening to it on the podcast or go ahead and comment down below and like this video if you're on youtube i appreciate the support Well, that's all I have for you today here on Teach, Play, Disc Golf. And I wanna leave you with three things. Remember to teach someone how to play disc golf this week, whether it's a family member or a friend, go ahead and teach someone, be kind to someone out on the course. Most importantly, have fun playing disc golf and have a great round.